Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing making your practice strengths-based podcast with our guest, Dr. Christy Patton. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Christy Patton. So thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Um, Could you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up being a vice dean at uh, NYU, uh, who happens to be an occupational therapist? Well, I always want advice in my title, Dennis. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's perfect. (laughs) That's it. No, thank you. Thanks for having me, Dennis. Uh, Background, I'm an OT. I got my bachelor's in OT, so in those days when you could still get your bachelor's, and then I got an advanced master's in OT, and then I got a PhD in educational psychology and um, started on the academic track uh, after being in practice for years, and was at Temple University prior to coming to NYU and then I got tenure on a Thursday and they asked me to be chair of a department on Friday (laughs) which is how things work Um, so I was chair I was chair of the department of OT at NYU for seven years and then was asked to by our new dean to be vice dean of academic affairs so in that role I oversee all of Steinhardt's 8,000 students and 11 departments um, in the areas of culture, education, and human development, OT, PT, speech, they all fall under human development. So we're at ed school with OT in it and um, have been in that position now, finishing up my third year, third year as vice dean. Nice. And it's, um, as, a, as a reformed academic, it's just nice to have occupational therapists in, in sort of uh, higher positions within universities uh, just because it's easier to um, help uh, other people understand our language because we have our own unique language um, from time to time for sure. So what is it like being an occupational therapist that's in sort of that administrative role? Well, you know, I think it's really, I I 100% agree with you, Dennis. It's really important to have our voice and our perspective because I think um, in professional schools, and we're dominated by a variety of professions in my school, um, it's really important to understand what the professional issues are. So when legal says something about clinical field work and internships, you know. During COVID, perhaps. Exactly, during COVID, perhaps. Um, I might have a, a, a wealth of experience about that. So, um, and then just bringing kind of a more holistic lens to the to the role, I think. But now I agree. I think more OTs need to not lose their OTness, but also go to, um, and I still maintain my academic uh appointment in my department. I'm a full professor. I just became full professor last year and teach um, electives or whatever I can in my department and and advise my PhD students. Gotcha. Very nice. So could you just talk a little bit about um, why you decided to get a PhD in the first place? I was a geek that loved the idea (laughs) of research and I loved the idea of collecting data and proving uh, what we do worked and why. Um, so educational psychology at Temple University, I was doing a lot of work in schools. So the study of how kids learn in schools was very appealing to me. So there was no PhD in OT um, at, at Temple um, at the time or rehab sciences for that matter. So educational psychology was a nice fit. And I was doing my, I'd done my master's in temperament and there were some temperament researchers at, in that department. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense that you did your master's in temperament because you have such a pleasant temperament yourself so that's <laughs> that's a good thing so I don't know if you knew this or not but you're a Slagle lecturer 
I heard. Yes, how I kind of gave a big lecture. How exciting is that? So for those that, that don't know, the Slagle Lecture is arguably, at least in the United States, we can't say in all of the profession, but in the United States is kind of the highest award uh, that we give uh, one of our practitioners. So congratulations again for being a Slagle Lecturer. Um, could you just, and so you got to present that live and in person. Uh, last year at AOTA in San Antonio. Um, could you just talk a little bit about what that process was like? And so, um, you know, how did how did you go into putting your Slagle lectureship together? And what was that like for you as a an occupational therapist to, to be able to do that? Oh, my goodness. It was such a gift. And, you know, how you get the Slagle, you find out. So you're awarded it. I was awarded it in spring of 2021. And you give it spring of 2022, which I just did in April. But you're called. I was called by the president of AOTA, Wendy Hillebrand at the time, who tells you you won. And it was in fall of 2020, which if you remember fall of 2020. There were things was, going on? There were things going on. It was a bleak period. I became vice dean during a global pandemic trying to. So it was a, a, a ray of light um, that was very exciting. And then it was just such a gift. The year that you're given to write and think and read about these ideas. And I talked to a couple other previous Slagle winners. Winnie Dunn was one of my nominators. So I talked with her along with Beth Pfeiffer and Moya Keneally. Um, they came up. They I workshopped some ideas. I talked to Glenn Gillen. I talked to a couple people. And they gave me advice. And... Um, Really, the the wonderful thing about the year, I think, looking back on it, A, putting together the ideas that I have, but also um, reflecting back on our profession and reflecting back on uh, what threads do I want to pull forward. And then with those threads that I want to pull forward, and, and in my case with this legal I gave, it was about kind of what professionals are thinking about with the more critical disability studies, disability justice lens that incorporates some of the work that I've done around strengths and autism, but it goes much deeper around this idea of the bias we may bring or the bias that society has against disability. So it was really um, just a joy to be able to spend that time looking back in our profession, but then also bringing in materials that have nothing to do with OT, but are so relevant to OT based on my um, strong beliefs about uh, inclusion, for example. So um, that period of reading and really just going into the literature was wonderful. I had set up a lot of practices um, because you want to practice and get feedback. And then about three, no, two and a half weeks before this Lego, I had emergency gallbladder surgery. Oh, I didn't that know that. It canceled wow. all of my practices. <laughs> so I practiced four times to my mother who came up and took care of me <laughs> and got one practice to another group, but that was it. And what did your so. mom, what did your mom think of the talk? She loved it, and she got to listen. And she even she was there in San Antonio along with eleven of my family members, which was wonderful. Um, my kids got to see me do it. I have a twenty-seven and a twenty-five-year-old son, and they, my one son, came up afterwards, and he's like, "Mom, I think you're kind of a big deal." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Well, thank you, James." <laughs> so it was it was really, and then preparing, going to the lecture, they're publishing the journal article of the Slago. Going from that, you know, it's just a piece that I'm proud of, and I really want people to look at and cite and use for um, their work to really change the narrative and shift the paradigm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of when I was reading about the Slagle lecture, because that's all I'll do is be reading about Slagle lectures, but it's for substantial and lasting scholarly, scholarly contribution to the profession. I mean, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. good, good it, on you. Really humbling, though, too, when you look at who's won it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Do a good job. That's it. <laughs> And uh, so your title was Finding Our Strengths, Recognizing Our Professional Bias and Interrogating Systems. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, do you want to just talk about your introduction to yourself or about yourself um, as you started this legal and maybe how that idea came to you? It came. Um, so part of my legal was uh, be curious, be wrong, be better. And it came about me introducing myself as a way of being wrong a week before the legal. You don't, probably don't know this story. I don't know if I told you the story, Dennis, behind the... So I, I gave a visual description of myself, you know, middle-aged white woman in a red suit. That is, and, and I used visual descriptions for access purposes. Um, and a week before this legal, I was in a conference, and I do so much work with disability advocates. Um, and I'm so I attend a lot of meetings, attend a lot of conferences. And one of the speakers is a, is a disability activist and said you know, when will I go to a conference where the default setting is visual description? And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting ready to give this big lecture that I had to turn it in two months ago or a month ago, and I don't have visual descriptions. So I let Frank know that, Frank Gaynor know that I was changing things. He was, and um, it, that was added a week before the Slagle. So um, in the spirit of being wrong and being better, I was practicing what I preached a week before going, oh, gosh, I, this is so wrong. Why didn't I think about this? Okay, I got to be better and do this. So to your podcast listeners, I still am a middle-aged white woman now in a brown dress. <laughs> That's it. Absolutely. Although we have no video. So everybody is, no one has access to uh, to the video today. So it's only, only audio. Um, so what was it like to kind of go back and read some of your your previous writing, I, I went looking before this and you had an, an um, OT practice article that I couldn't find from like the, the late 80s, early 90s, that would have been pretty interesting that kind of was talking about this. So what was that like for you to kind of, you know, go through your, um, you know, kind of your scholarship through the years and kind of reevaluate what you were saying then? And, and how does that influence what you're saying now? Well, given the 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 tenor and the scope of my Slagle, I realized how ableist I was in my writing. So it was wonderful to go back and look at the threads of kind of strength-based practice and shifting um, this paradigm and really recognizing professional bias. But I also had to deal with the fact that um, I did write in a very ableist way. You know, I talked a lot about deficits, talked about kids suffering talked about you know so that was a showed me the evolution of where I've come from which means to me that anyone can do it right you know you can you can go a re-examined writing and a re-examined life is a very good thing so um afforded me that opportunity and also really um solidified quite frankly, you know, like the strength-based practice frame of reference, I wrote something I re wrote recently about resilience and, and autism and from a strength-based model, um, that it also was not really rich in intersectionality, which I had, I would write now that I would um, definitely include more intersectional work and authors and voices. Um, a lot of autistic advocates are um, autistic advocates um, that are not of color. And so how are historically underrepresented groups represented in my work? as well sure 
So um, could you just define a couple terms? So we'll talk a little, about, a little bit about disability studies, but the term ableism um, and how you would define that. Ableism is a preference for um, non-disabled individuals. <laughs> it's a preference for um, uh, things that are more able-bodied. Um, so, for example, a study in the New York Times, an article just in the New York Times just came out last week that talked about doctors prefer non-disabled patients. That's a very ableist view, right? Um, in my Slagle, I talked about 84% of healthcare workers preferring individuals without a disability. That's a very ableist view, a preference for non-disabled ways of being. We have, um, I also, since my, I gave my Slagle, someone had given me this stat that of the 60, let's say 61 uh, best Oscar nominations in the last like 30 years or so, 27 of them have been winners because non-disabled characters, for the most part, played disabled actors. That's the entertainment industry preference to work with a non-disabled actor. The only three are one in 1946, where you had a World War II vet who lost both his hands, played a World War II vet who had lost both his hands. Then we had to jump to 1987 for Marley Matlin to win. And then finally last year for Tony Kutzer to win in CODA. And so the whole history of the Oscars, you've had non-disabled actors playing disabled characters and winning awards for that. Um, good example of ableism. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with occupationaltherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's occupationaltherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. Gotcha. Absolutely. The numbers don't lie, usually. Sometimes they do, but in this case, they they don't. Um, And then in terms of disability studies, just a little bit about what disability studies is and maybe how that marries well with occupational therapy. Well, it, it should marry well with occupational therapy, but it hasn't. Um, so, so I think disability studies is really looking at um, taking a critical eye on interventions, a critical eye on therapeutic practices, a critical eye from um, a, the disability lived experience to define and really look at how we should be doing things in a very um, critical way that questions the dominating paradigm, which is the in OT, the medical model. So then if you look at our school practices and our ACOAT standards, they're pretty much still very medically based. So it, and the point of some of the critiques of uh, how we're integrating the disability studies uh, work and disability justice work in OT is that we know what it is. We like it. We like the idea. We just haven't figured out how to integrate um, it into our practices and research and education. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about some of your biases uh, in terms of occupational therapy practice, but I want to tell you about um, 
a blind spot I had in front of 600 people on a webinar uh, right when So can COVID I tell you a blind spot would be in Oh my gosh, you're right. Oh my goodness. Dennis. Thank you. Thank you for calling <laughs> me out on that. A, um, now I can't even think of what another word would be other than to say An though, unforeseen consequence. An unforeseen consequence. Um, but it'll be ironic when I tell you what this unforeseen consequence was. So I've created a, an assessment that is data visualization. And so um, within the assessment that I'd created, we have an NIH grant to make it even prettier and better. Um, I always worked within this project search framework, which is a, a group that I work with through Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And during COVID, um, we had just made it telehealth, teleeducation enabled. And so it was really difficult to provide services for individuals um, with disabilities in home-based settings just because you know schools uh, employment opportunities were really limited and so i did this first webinar for five or six hundred people lots of whom were from vocational rehabilitation agencies and from state vr agencies and so i'm showing this data visualization how proud i am of this data visualization uh, and so someone said you know what are what are the accessibility features of this data visualization for someone that is low vision or blind I had never even thought about it. And that's embarrassing as an occupational therapist to say, which is what I said to them. Uh, and so we're still, and of course, we're a couple years in, still working on trying to figure out how to make that um, data visualization that changes on a regular basis accessible for someone that has um, blind or low vision. And so um, that was my bias that I brought in so let's talk about your biases, Christy. Christy, if you want to talk about, or, or other things that occupational therapists do, I think just by, by our nature sometimes. Okay, so we have a lot of bias in education, which I'll talk about. But I think I'm going to frame kind of the conversation about bias in a broad stroke first and then talk about, uh, I think we have a bias towards um, helping others overcome disability versus helping society overcome ableism and help and which would enor enormously help those that we serve so we have this narrative of um, let me help you let me fix you let me help you overcome your disability versus how about we help overcome ableism and really look at stigma society environmental barriers facilitation and knocking down those barriers and if we if we turned our eye as and we're a profession that can do this I really feel if we turned our eye to the environment for example and turned it a, a, a just encapsulating the individual as well in the interaction but it, we, we we talk about high and low functioning individuals when we should be talking about high and low functioning environments it, individuals aren't high or low functioning the environments with within their, which, where they find themselves, the education, the people, the, the paradigms, the people in that, those environments you use, how society, look, that, that is all what makes us high or low functioning on any given day. And there may be environments that I am very high functioning in and environments that I'm very low functioning in because of the environment, not because anything changed within me. Right. So, um, you know, if you have someone that's got sensory sensitivities and all of a sudden I'm in a, a very loud environment, is it because I'm low functioning? Or is the, did the environment change? So I think that our bias is to think about overcoming disability, residing disability within that individual, and then really working hard to change that individual 
and assessing that individual's weaknesses and then really working hard to change those things. And, and that's our bias. Our bias, I think, is to re remediate weaknesses. And if and we do this with a population that is uh, that then disadvantages them from that bias. Because if you look at like, um, you know, I had this great talk with two of my students. I taught a class on disability inclusion and uh, disability justice and radical inclusion. And I had a lot of students here at NYU with uh, disabilities that took that class. And they one made a wonderful Two, two students were sitting right next to each other. One was gifted and one was uh, what, gift, uh, twice exceptional, gifted and had a disability and the other had a disability. And they talked about their IEP meetings. And in their IEP meetings, if you were gifted and twice exceptional, it was all about what you could do and your strengths. <laughs> if you had an IEP meeting and were, you were a special ed student, it was all about what you couldn't do. And right there, I think, typifies that bias. It's, it's a, it, and we've got to really catch ourselves and, 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 and do, it, do it differently. In education, I think professors, uh, I and I have this myself, you know, I know universal design for learning, right? We teach universal design for learning. And we know that there are multiple means of engagement and multiple means of representation, right? But what, when do you see on syllabus, turn in an assignment a variety of ways, right? Show what you know in a variety of ways. Or when do we say to a class at the very beginning, you know what? You get up and move when you need to. I just want you to let all of you know I don't care that you're sitting in these chairs for three hours. We don't do that. Yeah, we teach this is how you should work with. So I think if we start started teaching that and modeling that in our educational settings, practice also as, as students go out, we'll start, to, we'll start to change as well. And not just teach about it, but model it. Yeah. I think um, an example um, when I was teaching about employment and, and I was doing a talk on an, an autism class and there were um, a number of people with autism that were in the autism class but I so I just said so what's the stereotype that we have about people with autism so that's a horrible way to to start a, a question in the first place and so um, one of the guys raised his hand and said you know so we're friendly and we smile a lot and and just kind of named these multiple positive traits about and it was just so great for the entire class to hear but especially for me to hear that you know just to really um kind of re help me reimagine um what uh you know the stereotypes that that we bring with us and to um, um, you know reimagine our own stereotypes and, and biases that we bring and we've done such a good job of training society. Like it, it's really, I was so, I was, had such a good conversation um, last night with a young man or two nights ago with a young man that, um, that is autistic, very interesting. And just, we just talked a lot about uh, different subjects, history fan, I'm a history fan, et cetera, et cetera. And when the person that supports that person talks about you being a saint for talking to that person, you're like, no. But that's, oh, I'm so glad you took time to talk. Because, because what have we done as society? We've, made, we, we, we've done a lot of deprivation around just social engagement that's not a social skills group, you know, or not a, a something with a purpose, you know, versus just talking about things that interest us mutually. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you, in terms of other than my the way that I look at my biases and try to overcome those, basically I I just keep stumbling, and then realize that. But are there other ways that you might suggest we could sort of look at our own professional bias that that we bring to the to our our practice? 
have people that we serve come and teach us is the biggest way to do it. You know, if you if you are someone that works in acute care and you want to see um, what your biases are, talk to people that have graduated from acute care. If you're a rehab therapist and you want to see what your biases are, talk to your former patients and clients and be very, have an honest conversation. What was I doing wrong? What could I do better? What could I do different? You know, this is how I view it. Because we are disproportionately gatekeepers to disability identity, and we should not be. Healthcare professionals are disproportionately gatekeepers to identity. And so, so what, if do, you I mean, treat what do you, you mean by that? If I treat you as a patient that you need me to fix you, that's part of your identity. If I treat you as someone that is collaborating me with me and I don't, you know what you need, let's find what you need in a way that is not about me fixing, but about reducing environmental barriers because you're just so amazing the way you are. Yes, we can do some things better. What are your goals? What do you want to do better? And it's not ignoring the challenges, but really um, having a, a reference of, of disability disability awareness acceptance pride i mean you this all the stages where it's it doesn't it doesn't help if you start as you need me to help you and i'm the one alone that can fix you <laughs> you know and and i wonder also you know cuz i do a lot of work in the schools as well and trying to encourage um, occupational therapists if we graduate students at 10 11 or 12 that we re at the very least, rescreen them when they're a little bit older to see what their different needs are. And that's my, my own, my bias that I bring is I think sometimes when kids start talking back to us a little bit or start sort of questioning why we're doing what we're doing, I don't know. Is that part of why DOT graduates them and and why we're a little less interested in, in working with kids that are a little bit Maybe older? Maybe we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. What? Yes. So we, again, it goes back to talking to self-advocates. You know, we have, uh, I know we're going to talk about the ASD Nest program, but we also have a new program called the PATH program that just was funded by the DOE. It's a collaboration between the DOE and my colleague in Applied Psych and myself. Um, and we're doing a program for kids that are diagnosed emotionally disturbed, similar to autism. So a lot of mental health, a lot of post-trauma interventions, but we had a self-advocate who was in these classrooms and was diagnosed as ED and written off, and we he came back and trained the therapist. He trained the teachers, and he talked to the OTs about, because, you know, he's like, you thought taking me out of class was a good thing. It was not. He goes, I would come back to class, and everyone wanted to know where I got stickers, why I got things that they didn't. It was hell. You know, so, so, so you, you when you start to talk to people that have had the lived experience, you're going to be like, wow, our models of service delivery really are messed up, aren't they? You know, and you're going to begin to hopefully be a little bit more creative on a systems perspective um, because it's, it's, and that doesn't mean that's how everyone feels. But I think if you, if you start hearing from advocates and recipients of your services, no matter what area you're working on, your practices are going to be better and not just about, how did you do as a therapist? But how do they feel about how their disability is viewed? Are there are there issues with stigma? Um, what's their day like? Like how how do, you taught them how to use a wheelchair, but do they have access to transportation? Right? Like so so and how can how, are there are there resources for that? So it, I mean I really think it's 
I tell my students, Dan, it's, it's really easy to be a bad therapist. <laughs> yes. It's really hard to be a good one. And I think if you're a good one, you, you begin to start to consider these things. Yeah, I, I hang out with a lot of Canadian OTs these days because the, the group I'm part of is doing a lot of growth in, uh, in Canada. And so they I get to quote them instead of quoting myself sometimes is they, they really believe, um, I think they are a little bit more holistic, a little bit more interested in systems thinking, I think, than probably our preparation is, probably because of the nature of their their system compared to ours, but their their sort of line is, why am I working on something that's not, not for someone that's younger, that's going to really be benefiting them when they're, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22? Like, is this really significant? Is this significant to them, you know, so that they can hopefully take that information forward? So um, it seems like you've had a lot of experience with autistic adults um, that have really changed your practice. What, how did you get connected with them in the first place? And how can those of us, as you said, no matter what area of practice we're in, how do we, how do we go about inviting uh, some of those recipients of our services back to, to critique us a bit? First and foremost, you put it in your budget and you pay people that come back and you learn from. You know, this is not free labor for disability activists to come teach us better. So I always give that caveat because I have a lot of people that call me and say, hey, we'd love to we'd love to be able to bring a group of autistic advocates and learn from them. I'm like, well, what's your budget? And then there's silence. I'm like, no, no. So we got to dispel that notion that we can just learn from people if they're, they're providing a service and they're teaching. So build in compensation. Um, there's so many support groups out there. And I think if you go with a willingness to understand your biases and learn, um, there are a lot of advocates that are very available to give lectures, uh, consult, et cetera. So, um, and that's growing as the, as, as, as the, all these kids grow up and become activists and a little like, you need to know this kind of thing, which we do in the field of autism. Um, I, it went back to, I had a project. I've always worked with uh, autistic uh, clients um, and students throughout my whole career, um, but really got connected to a lot of advocates through a project I did back at Temple University where we were um, given a grant to train behavioral health providers. And we decided through sheer luck and I think good fortune to shift away from what they wanted us to do. Um, after we would go and see like, go to a, a behavioral session, health session and see like a come when called drill that looked like dog training. And we're like, how are we gonna talk about sensory and if this is what you're doing, you know? So we stepped back and we um, got a group of autistic adults, many of who typed independently to communicate and were kind of classically autistic, had all the behaviors that we as OTs would wanna change and were brilliant. And it made me change everything I knew about autism, to be quite honest, and how we had gotten so much wrong. And so then after that, it was when people knew I was very receptive to talking with autistic adults. I had a lot of autistic adults that wanted to talk to me um, because people were not talking to the autistic community at the time. And then I came to NYU, quick story. I came to NYU in fall of 2007 and 
NYU, I started getting calls. I just started. I started getting calls from all these self-advocates going, Christy, what are you doing at NYU? And I'm like, why? What's going on? I'm, 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 I thought it was a good career move. <laughs> and um, I've said, heard don't, good things. Yes. Yeah, so they said, don't you know about the ransom notes campaign? Like the ransom notes campaign? No. So they, they schooled me. And there was um, a psychiatrist who headed up a large institution here at my institution um, who had gotten some free marketing and decided that a good idea would be to have a big public awareness campaign about mental health issues in adolescence and youth that was akin to ransom notes, like you were kidnapped. So it kind of went like this. Warning, I have your, I have your son. He will never have a job and never have friends. Signed, Autism. Warning, I have your daughter. She will make herself throw up and then die. Signed, anorexia. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist of the campaign. So I got involved there on advocating on behalf of, uh, with self-advocates. Um, and I ended up talking to the psychiatrist and saying what a horrible idea it was. And did he talk to autistic advocates? Did he talk? And he said, no, I talked to their families, but I didn't talk to them. Okay, here's the breakdown. And he, he, he said, you know, they keep hacking into my system and taking down these ads. I said, <laughs> Good. I mean, ransom notes, ransom notes, meet, 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 passionate interests. <laughs> and so um, Ari Neiman uh, and a group of other um, self-advocates, it re they really pushed the needle to get that campaign off. Um, and that was my first semester here at NYU and really was the laid the groundwork for Autistic Self-Advocacy Network um, and all the incredible work they've done since then um, and before then. But really just aligning myself more with that community when I saw the, the professional bias there about that community. So, um, and then ever since it's just been, I really um, feel that I, 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 I don't have research teams without autistic collaborators. I don't write, you know, if I present without someone that's autistic, it's about, hey, professional, here's your bias. I don't do, hey, let me tell you about the lived experience of autism or let me tell you about the sensory issues in autism. That's not mine to do. I think we should be paying autistic experts to do that. Gotcha. Um, it's, so it, it is, I think, on all of us to try to figure out how to, you know, include and to ally with the people that we're, we're supporting, you, you know, and that obviously they're also supporting us. That's kind of a, a two-way, a two-way street. Could you talk, you, you had mentioned the, the ASD Nest program um, as part of uh, the work that you've done. Could you just talk a little bit about what that is and how you became involved in it? Sure. So when I came to NYU, I, I met with Dorothy Siegel, who founded the ASD Nest program, which was at that time a very small um, inclusion program. And it's a comprehensive inclusion program for students that are autistic um, and they're educated alongside their non-autistic peers. It's not a typical inclusion class where you have um, kids with a bunch of different types of disabilities. It's very much um, it's the ASD nest and we do an incredible amount of training with everyone involved in the ASD nest from the principal on down to all the therapists, teachers, etc. It's a collaborative team taught model. So you have a special ed teacher and a gen ed teacher in each room and it went from it was in I think when I started here I want to say it was in maybe five schools we are in 70 schools educating over 1700 students that are autistic alongside about 6,000 other peers K through 12 um, and it really is embodies some of these strength-based practices it, it we are very much um, what are your interests 
we very much center the autistic voice. We have autistic consultants. I have a full-time um, autistic independent um, learning consultant that, that is on my team. Um, so we, we have always, uh, one of the things I brought to it is we've always centered the voice of the autistic expert to guide what we're doing. Um, and now more so in a much more deeper intersectional way. And it's, it's working. These kids do really well. And it's not about changing them. It's about really understanding them and giving them the supports they need academically, sensory, behaviorally, socially. Um, and schools, it changes school culture. When a school becomes a nest school, the entire school changes practices. And we went from begging a school to have this inclusion model to schools now begging the Department of Ed to be a nest school. And we're doing the same thing in PATH. That's our, that's our goal in PATH is to do the same thing for um, multiply marginalized kids that are often diagnosed as emotionally disturbed, which we are have changed that definition in New York State or that name in New York State, it's a horrible name, um, to give these kids um, a much different experience, a much different path, if you will, uh, than, than the path that they've been on. So, so as I understand the, the NEST program, and I, I assume the PATH program, I don't know as much about that. So you, you have three or four individuals with autism, and then they are in um, a classroom with, with peers who who may have an, another disability or uh, no, may not have, have an identified a, we, a disability? No, we have about three. No, it's never three. It's usually okay, four, to six, four, okay. to, four to six. Four to six um, autistic students, with um, eight in kindergarten, going all the way up to twenty um, non-autistic, non-disabled peers. So, and then they it, it, there's so much support for the teachers, the coaches. We have a coach coach in each school we train everyone the OTs have I think six PDs where all the OTs from all the nest schools come together and if we're doing something on executive functioning everyone learns about it so it's a uh, same with um, our social development intervention um, we had uh, she's my PhD student now Dora on, on Mueri she's did a independence curriculum that the OTs did in middle school and it really changed kind of the middle school practices because OTs are like what do we do in middle school like how about an independence curriculum that has self-determination as a part of it and self-advocacy as a part of it? So it's a nice way to spread practices and spread good practices. So it's kind of a public health model in some ways mm -hmm. that, that everyone gets yeah, to benefit one, from. Everyone, yep. Yeah, tier one, everyone, yeah, a lot of tier one strategies, absolutely. Same gotcha. with the path, yeah. And so you're, you're seeing improvements for the kids with autism, but how about the other kids as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're good classrooms because they're, they're well taught by two teachers and they're somewhat smaller, so you know, you can't, you can't count out that as a variable. But the practices that benefit, we know the practices that benefit um, students with disabilities benefit students without disabilities. So it is really embodying that universal design aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's just funny when I, my daughter's in, in, uh, in college now and has a, um, has uh, some uh, attention issues. And so it's just sort of funny, like she, it, whatever they would have called someone in, in high school or maybe they do in other places outside of Indiana, but in her college, she has a skills coach. Um, and it's just such a more positive spin yeah. on, on things. And right. We hire coaches, right? Yes, absolutely. And so it's just a, a maybe a, a better name, which makes for a better model. Mm -hmm. um, I and think. language, ma language matters. A absolutely. Absolutely. It does. So if you think about, so that's a systems change approach. Could you talk a little bit about why that is important uh, for occupational therapists to consider 
um, at looking at the systems we're in and is, do, you know, do we, <laughs> do we need to diagnose the system more than we need to diagnose the, well, the folks I think that we, we're we need to, we need to kind of, um, call out the system and say, you know, it, it, just like if I said to you, Dennis, I'm going to work one-on-one -on -one with you and for a half hour, once a week in the school, and you're going to have such a better school experience. Or if I said, Dennis, I'm going to work with your teachers and everyone that sees you all 30 hours a week, and I'll work with you as well, but I'm going to work with everyone else who, so they know what we're working on and what we're doing. You're going to have even a better experience. And if I go to the principal and I say, hey, principal, have I got this plan? It's not only this class, it's every class. And you know what? If we do this movement in the morning, every kid will it's going to benefit. So you can see that kind of cumulative effect. Um, but you have to be ready. You have to be armed with, here's what I know works. And here's how I know we can improve this, this system. I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in positions where I can influence systems now. But that's what you have to do with your voice, same as you, with your with your programs you're doing. You can influence systems now, right? So what are you, how are you influencing them? And who's at the table? And whose voice are they listening to? I think is really, really important. We're lucky in the DOE in New York City because um, the person who's head of all therapy services, OTPT speech, social worker, is an OT. And so from a systems perspective, um, it's, 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 really, it's really amazing to have that connection. And that's why, you know, we talked about earlier when SOTs get themselves into higher positions, they can influence and change systems. But you can also change it if you're an OT working in the school by yourself. You can change systems. Um, if you have a good idea and you really educate uh, people around you about that idea, you don't do it in isolation in your own therapy room. And then it, nothing you do in your own therapy room and you say, wow, this is so amazing. The system should change. It's in your own therapy. The system right. doesn't even know about it. I always, I would always say the least effective I could ever be is alone with somebody in a room, um, because you really, you know, I can I can influence 15 minutes of their week, 30 minutes of their week, but who's there that's going to be there, you know, 35 hours a week in a school or longer if it's a, uh, you know, depending on the setting. Exactly, and if I do if I do a sensory intervention with you, a sensory based intervention with you um, in my room, great. If I teach you how to advocate and be do like a sensory scan and advocate for your sensory needs and with whatever environment you're in, that's way more powerful. Absolutely. And gives the control to other people as well. And, and you know, to, to be able to figure out what people, what individuals, for them to figure out themselves, what they need and what they don't need is and incredibly it develops, powerful. And it develops agency, right? And it gets, it, gets, it gets you away from the I alone can fix you to this individual is going to go out into this world and what tools do they need to go out into this world so that they, given the systems in place, how do they navigate? Gotcha. Um, so you kind of, you mentioned social skills. So um, there is a, a podcast that you've done on, on another, apparently you see other podcasters. Uh, I, but I, I, <laughs> I, I would never cheat on you, Dad. <laughs> but I have done a podcast. So. But anytime I, I um, there's one in particular that anytime uh, I have a, a student or someone that comes up and is interested in and running a social skills group. Um, I, I direct them to this one particular podcast. So could you talk about um, occupational therapists running social skills groups and, and how you really think about that, Christy? Well, how I really think about it is, <laughs> <laughs> if they, if they, how did you learn to be social? Did you learn to be social in a social skill group? No. You learned to be social in doing things that interested you. And if you don't like reading books, you don't join a book club. 
So I, and we are occupational therapists. We have occupation in our title, meaningful occupations. So I, I think social skills groups where you're teaching me how to be social versus interest-based groups where socialization emerges. My one PhD student, Dr. Yulin Chen, she graduated, has done some wonderful work with our maker clubs around how just being in a space with a maker club where you are allowed, if you're really interested in presidents, to 3D print all the presidents and talk about that with other people. And you're really social. And you're really social in a way that's meaningful to you. So do I take you out of that experience or do I not let you have those experiences and say, okay, now we got to go to social skills group and learn how to be social? It's, it's, it's again, that remedial fix-it model. That doesn't mean you can't work on social skills, although I wouldn't even say, I don't even like the term social skills, and a lot of autistic advocates don't like the term social skills. Like, don't teach me eye contact because you'll get creepy eye contact, right? Teach me when I actually need eye contact contextually, which is not a lot of times. Maybe when you enter a group, when you go into a, a, a restaurant and there's a, or a party and there's a group of people, you should probably make eye contact with one or two people, but not prolonged eye contact. It's, it's a group entry skill. So how do I enter a group? And how can you, you know, but I'm not going to want to enter groups that I don't care about. I'm not going to go enter the group of uh, what's a, I'm not a video game player at all. I'm not going to go enter. I know. Sorry. Sorry, I'm, I'm fans. Not, I'm not either. Yeah. But I'm not going to go to a Do, gaming. Uh, Donkey Donkey Kong. <laughs> Mine's Atari Ping Pong. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I had yes, so we had I'm, Pong. I had Pong. I'm, o when I was... I'm, I'm OG. I'm like OG. Um, but you know what I mean. I'm not going to. I'm going to stay, but I'm not going to really feel like talking to anybody because I really am not interested at all in video games. Nor do I have any experience playing them. So already that level of conversation is subsumed at such a higher rate that I'm never going to feel like I'm going to get there, so, right? So if I'm autistic and I go into this conversation that is all about social and the movie we all watched and this, and I don't care about that, I, I, the bar's already set high for me, just like me in the video game conversation. So do I do all my work to get practice in video games so I can go and, or do I go take my my little social skills elsewhere in, in areas that I care about and I'm invested in. And I build a life. I build allies. I build friendships. I build, you know, vocations. I build, I build so much more. Which is why I think colleges are such a great opportunity. And, you know, because, you know, I, I, I'll stop talking about my freshman in college at some point, but, you know, there's the one that she's at, there's, you know, five or 600 different clubs that she could join. And, there are interests across the board. And so the more that we, you know, support and encourage uh, folks with various disabilities, but especially with autism, you know, to be in some of these post-secondary environments where they can, you know, find other people that are as interested in, in some things that they're interested in um, is really, uh, is really a cool thing. I always think about, um, there really are, there are people that um, are really love trains to the point of that they, they go and they sit and they, they wait and they, uh, it's just kind of amazing. There's a place near my house where it's like a, I don't know, there's a bunch of different tracks that cross and there are people of varying ages that are just hanging out and discussing trains and, you know, waiting for the next train to come by. And um, my great grandfather was on the railroad, so I have a little interest. Um, but oh, there's just so many. Mine, Dennis. Well, I there you go. Railroading in my family as well. Baltimore and Ohio, the BNO was. Uh, mine was, was the Pennsylvania Railroad. Ah, there you go. So, but um, you know, lots and lots of different things um, that are out there, and I think um, I, I just think generally in in our profession in occupational therapy that 
um, real works, you know, and contrived doesn't work very well. And so the closer we can get folks uh, to be able to um, be around the kinds of interests that they like, um, the better it is for everybody. And it doesn't mean you have to have those interests and be good at it so when they come to your little OT room, you can do this. It means you need to help them find those interests because it's not going to be you. And you get paid to be their friend. You're not their friend, right? So you are, so like how do you hook and connect families and, and start very early in valuing these interests, right? Versus, you know, if I have a four-year-old that's not, disabled or not autistic and is interested, I'm going to age myself here because I don't know the new, the new version. Dora the Explorer, probably not even a thing anymore. Yeah, she's still around, I think. Okay. But Dora, if you're, if you're not autistic, what do you do? You flood that kid with Dora. You buy sheets, you buy this, you buy this, you let them watch. If you're autistic, we now have a behavioral plan for you not to watch and talk about Dora. Something has gone really wrong there. You know, because there's a different depth and breadth um, we counter it as interfering and bad. We know from our research that it's not. It's very calming. It's very purposeful. It could be used. Please use this in schools for me to learn concepts and learn relationships and figure out the social code. Like, please use these interests. But um, we, tend to, we tend to call them restricted and repetitive and pathologize them. Instead of a strength. And to, to focus on that. Um, so you talked a little bit about maker spaces. Um, I was reading one of your articles that I thought was incredibly interesting. Could you just talk, you said you have a, a, a doc student or now I guess a doc graduate um, that has done some work in maker spaces. Yeah, I have actually um, now three doctoral students on this team, one graduated, but I have three that are currently on this project. It's NSF, it's funded by NSF, National Science Foundation, um, in conjunction, conjunction with EDC, our partner. Um, and we have, we have a really exciting plus that you don't know about is we started in middle schools and our nest classrooms um, and we did after school maker clubs with um, autistic and non-autistic students whoever was interested in them and had my one student measured um, the social reciprocity really pro sh showed some sound evidence to support the double empathy problem that Damian Milton talks about, which is, he's an autistic researcher and he talks about how it's a mismatch in communication. If autistic to autistic individuals are communicating, you don't see any autistic social deficits. And we found that as well. It's the autistic to non-autistic communication. But if it's autistic to autistic, you don't see those same social deficits. You see reciprocity, interaction, engagement, eye contact, et cetera, around interests. And I have a student now that is um, uh, doing work, and she just got something published, uh, coming out in AJOT, the issue is on um, the engineering design process in maker clubs and how that maps onto executive functions. Ex exactly. You know, so Kent, if you're using these interest-based clubs, these maker-based clubs, you can see that this engineering design process is totally supporting executive functions and is really working on problem solving, frustration, cognitive flexibility. So how can we do that in an interest-based group? And we just got a supplemental award for the project that we're going to train NYU autistic students that are studying um, STEAM majors um, and STEM plus art, STEAM, um, that are study, studying STEAM majors to mentor our high school students um, in mentoring and coaching sessions about the transition from high school to college if you're interested in um, STEAM subjects. 
So they're going to get training on mentoring. And yeah, we're really excited about that. Uh, we're working with our Wasserman Career Center here at NYU, and they're, they're going to be training our mentors before they go out and mentor next uh, semester. And so they're going to try, they're going to do finding their own strengths, looking at their own skills as a mentor. So building their own resume as they learn to be a mentor to our high school students. Nice. Well, and there was also some evidence that showed that um, when you have people with and without autism in maker groups, that sometimes it's the people um, without autism that are more uncomfortable, not in the social situation, but maybe they're not as successful at, at some of the, the maker uh, types of things that they're doing. I thought that was pretty right, interesting. Right, right. And the autistic students can help out. They can be in a position of um, helping versus and coaching versus kind of service, service recipients. So and we have a bunch of OTs trained in it now too. So OTs are going to be part of the uh, people that are delivering these clubs in their, in their schools, in their public schools. Nice. Is that in New York specifically or kind of? Yeah. Okay. New York specifically, but we part of it is all of our materials are available for anyone. Um, we have a curriculum and um, we, we'll have a website where they're available for free. Nice. Free is always a, always a good thing. Free is a great thing. That Very much so. Um, any other advice that you might have on, so it seems like you've done a, a, your share of systems change here and, and looking at, at the world a little differently. Um, you said, you know, we... We can do a little bit in our own uh, in our own corner of the world, but other advice on, you know, where we can go in terms of looking at system change and if there are things we can do together. Oh, definitely things we can do together. I think we as an OT community can be leaders in centering the voice of uh, disability experts in our practice. And that would totally change systems if we actually made a commitment to that um, and have stakeholder groups involved in our research, involved in our education of future OTs and involved in our practice. And I think collectively, I asked people when I gave my Slagle, I put up a commitment slide and gave you some examples of what you could commit to, which will be in the AJOT article, but commit to one of those things. And by committing to one of those things, you begin to change your own system and you find people that are more like you, and you find groups on Facebook uh, that are talking about this. You find groups that are out there that are saying, hey, wait, I did not listen to those with disabilities. Because disability activists have been waiting for healthcare professionals to get this for a very long time. So the train's already left the station. We're either going to be left behind and said, nope, we're still the experts who need to fix things, or no, we're going to have all these authentic partnerships with disabled activists and their families and other stakeholder groups to fundamentally overcome ableism in our professions and society. Yeah. And so those of us that don't have a budget, I have a little budget, but if um, you don't have a budget, what are some recommendations that you might have in terms of podcasts or books to read or experiences that we can we can have for ourselves to start listening to um, you know, autistic self-advocates and other, other people. Yeah. With disabilities. So completely free. And that comes to your, that comes to you every day. There's wonderful disability activist community on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Follow people, follow people that are out there that are doing this work. Um, intersectionally, I can, uh, provide a bunch of different people, um, their, their social media handles follow them and you'll start seeing the narrative and you'll start seeing that this is a very different narrative than how you were trained, um, what you may be experienced. But I say follow people on social media only because it's free and it comes to you, right? You don't have to go search for it. 
Um, and that is a good way to begin to see um, how people are looking at it from a different lens. You know, um, there are many out there. There are many out there that are really good. That okay. And we, um, we can put some links in the, in the yeah. show notes here as well. Yeah, that would um, be great. We can come great. up with a list together. But I, it's interesting because I, I, you actually encouraged me to do that about five or six years ago. And um, so it's interesting sometimes, especially when something comes in the news, and to really look and see how, you know, it may not strike me initially as being something that's, um, you know, really significant, but then through uh, a self-advocate's lens is incredibly significant in terms of how it really influences their lives. And, you know, um, and if we're looking to be allies with them, then we need to understand their concerns yeah and there, there's there's a great uh, thing i watched on media representation that i had my students watch dan habib who is a is a father of samuel habib who did a lot with including samuel and has done several movies since then he interviews some uh disability activists and they used the clip of cody lee on america's got talent he was the he is the autistic blind singer that i think ended up winning so he's kind of a it's a well-known clip and um then the disability activists break down that clip. And you'd say, wow, he was a really good singer. But they really point out how the media representation of that was and how ableist that is, which for many of us will look at that discussion and go, oh, I never thought of that. That's what you should be listening to and watching. Oh, I never thought about I never thought that that's how that would be perceived um, because we don't have that same lived experience. So. Yeah, listening listening to the experts, which is not me, podcast view <laughs> listeners, or or me. They've known they've known that that we're fourteen episodes in, so they know. I'm so we not just an did a complete podcast and basically just totally that's right. Listen to listen to everyone ourselves. else. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Christy Patton, Vice Dean, uh, Dr. Christy Patton, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. It was my pleasure, Dennis. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.